0: asked me if, she, if I could go to lunch with her after the worship service. I said, sure, no problem. So we had the worship service, and after the worship service, we went out to lunch. She sat down, and she asked me if I believed in angels. I says, sure, I believe in angels. It's in Scripture. And uh, she goes, well, I want to share a story with you that I don't usually share with other people because I don't want people to think that I'm crazy. So I said, okay. I said, what happened? She says, I was on the West Coast. I was visiting uh, my daughter. I don't know if it was in California or Arizona. And she says, I went to go visit her. And uh, I was driving in this desolate, desolate area, desolate region. And I had my granddaughter with me. And the granddaughter at the time was an infant. And she must have been traveling somewhere, but she was just her and the granddaughter. And as she's driving down this road where there was nothing and no one around, she ends up getting a flat tire. She doesn't know what to do. She didn't know how to fix a flat tire. And she's concerned now because she's in the middle of nowhere. And there's nothing, that the eye, there's nothing that the eye could see for miles, she said. And if you've ever driven out west and uh, driven through Death Valley, it's, it's desolate out there. So she didn't know what to do. So she started to pray, and she's like, God, you know, I need help. What am I going to do? I have this child with me. She's concerned for the child's well-being. How long are they going to be stuck out there in the desert? And so she cried out to God, and she said, Lord, I need help. Within 10 minutes of her prayer, someone pulls up behind her in in a pickup truck, and he gets out of the car, so she gets out of the car, And as she's telling the story, she says, you know, when he got out of the car, she says, I was kind of concerned. I wanted to get back in the car because I was scared. He looked a little rough. But uh, he spoke to her and very, very polite, uh, dark hair, spoke uh, with an accent. I think it sounded like maybe he was from Mexico or something like that. He asked her what the problem was. And she's carrying the baby in 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 her arms. He said, what's the problem? And she said, well, I have a flat tire. And he, and he said, and she says, I don't know what I'm going to do. She goes, can you help me out? And he says, yeah, I can, I can help you out. And he goes, do you have a spare? And she says, yeah, I think we have one in, in, the, in the trunk. And fortunately they did, but he told her there was no way that this was going to work, that she could only drive so long on the spare, didn't have a lot of air in it at all. And so he told her that if you go two miles down the road, you're going to find a gas station, and in that gas station, there's a mini garage, and you're going to find a tire that's going to be exactly the kind of tire that you're going to need for that vehicle. There's only one tire remaining. So if you go down there, I'll change the tire for you. You go down there, and they'll put the tire on for you. And so she goes. He changes the tire. So she goes. He follows her to the gas station. She tells the gentleman who works at the gas station what happened, and sure enough, there's a tire exactly that she needed for her car. And so tires changed. So she leaves and she starts driving. And the gentleman who had pulled over in the pickup truck followed her. And as she's driving, she looks behind her and the the pickup truck's right behind her. And she takes her eyes off the rearview mirror and starts looking down the highway. She looks up again in the rearview mirror and the, the pickup truck that was behind her is gone. Nowhere to be found. And she said there was no on-ramp and there was no off-ramp anywhere. And she was obviously puzzled. And then she, said, she says, you know, I found interesting is that when I was holding the baby in my arms, the baby was reaching for the, for the man who had stopped in the pickup truck as he was talking to me. And she says the child would never do that with anybody, never. And all the child wanted to do was reach out and, and hold Uh, This gentleman, and she found it strange. And then, when this suddenly this pickup truck disappears from following her out of nowhere, she was thinking, Was this an angel? And so she asked me, Do you believe this was an angel? I said, I have no idea if it was an angel. I have no idea, and I can't explain whether the person behind you, you know, I, I can't explain it. I'm not saying it wasn't, I'm not saying it was. But It's possible that it was. And she didn't want to share that story with too many people because she was concerned how people were going to react about if she were to tell that story to other people. And I don't know, maybe some of you have stories that you can explain or maybe you can't explain. And you think this may have been an angel of God that was involved in your life. I've heard other people tell other stories as well. And when we know that angels are called to minister to God's people in a time of need, just like they did with Jesus... Who's to say it wasn't an angel? But the story reminded me of the passage we're going to read today, because unlike the story that this woman told me many years ago, the story we're going to read today, there's no doubt that there was an angel involved in what goes on in the life of Zechariah as he worships in the temple. Uh, The passage we're talking about is Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. He receives an angelic encounter. He receives an angelic encounter. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses uh, 5 to 25 in one shot. So just follow along as I read. I may stop and explain certain things as I go, okay? There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest... "...named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all of the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years." And so it was while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division according to the custom of the priesthood his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense I'm going to stop right there it says that uh, that that Zechariah was of the division he was a priest And it was a division, uh, he was a member of the division of Abijah. Now, what's going on here, and um, you have to be familiar with the Old Testament to understand what's going on. At this particular time uh, in in Jewish history, it's called Second Temple Judaism, there were about 18,000 priests, give or take, okay? All of these priests could not serve at the temple in one time. There was just too many many priests. So what they did is they had a rotating schedule of priests that would worship and serve in the temple at a designated time. And these priests were divided up into divisions. And uh, Zechariah was a part of the division of Abijah. And so these priests would serve twice a year. At one week intervals. So they would serve one week and then they would rotate again and they would serve another week. So they would serve twice a year to go into the temple to worship, these priests would. So his division is called to go into Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Now, each division had a certain number of priests, maybe 450 priests would go at one time to serve in the temple. And they would, they would, um, you would find out which responsibility you would have as a priest by the casting of lots. And so they cast lots and Zechariah, his lot fell on going into the temple proper to burn incense on the altar of incense. Okay? So When it says that uh, Zechariah goes into the temple, he's going into the temple proper, the actual building. It's not the temple courtyard, it's the actual building. And only a priest could go in there to offer burnt incense. Only one person could do that, and that was one priest. Among all the division that was there, only one would be designated to burn altar in the holy place, in the temple proper. And so that's what he was called to do. He walks into the building and he's going to, of course, you had, the, you had the table of showbread, you had the golden lampstand, then you had the altar of incense, and behind the altar of incense you had the curtain, which separated the most holy place from the holy place, and in the most holy place you had the, the Ark of the Covenant with Aaron's rod that budded and, and, and the, the jar of manna that the children of Israel had when they walked through, the, when they were in the desert. But he goes into the holy place, And he alters incense on the altar, and and, and the incense would go up, symbolic of the prayers of God's people. And so he's offering incense in the temple, in the holy place, and the incense goes up. He's doing that inside the temple. The people are worshiping outside of the temple, together, collectively, offering prayers outside. That's what's going on. This is uh, something that Zechariah would probably do only once in his lifetime. So this was a very privileged uh, responsibility. And he wouldn't stay in that temple for very long for fear of death. You, you, you did what you had to do, and then you would leave. Okay? Because God's presence is there. God is holy. And you make a mistake, and it could cost you your life. Okay? So that's what's going on here. He's offering incense at a time when he was designated to do so. It was a special time. Okay? So then the angel of the Lord appeared to him while he's doing this, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. What does that mean, that he was standing on the right side of the altar of incense? The right side of the altar of incense means it was a position of honor and it was a position of favor. So when Zechariah sees the angel appear on the right side of the altar of incense, he should understand and know that this appearance of of an angel is not to... uh, judge him. It was to show him favor. This is good news for Zechariah. Okay? And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, to the, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was as soon as the the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived and she shut her, she hid herself five months saying thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. It's rather lengthy passage but it goes to show you that here we have an angelic encounter. The angel Gabriel is going to make an annunciation to Zacharias that he's going to have a son. Now What's interesting is I want to go beyond this particular passage into what Luke is doing in chapters 1 and 2. If you look at chapters 1 and 2, you're going to notice that there is a pattern that the author Luke is presenting in the first two chapters. The pattern goes like this. You have uh, the the announcement of John's birth. Then you have the announcement of Jesus' birth. Then you have uh, John's birth, Then you have Jesus' birth. And in between the announcements and the births themselves is the the interaction between uh, Mary and Elizabeth, the mother of the two children. And so you see a pattern there. Well, what's the pattern for? Well, clearly the author wants to make a comparison and a contrast between the announcement of John and the announcement of Jesus and the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. That's what he wants to do. He wants us, as we read those two chapters, to make a comparison between these two individuals. The question is, why does he want to do that? Why does he want us to compare John's announcement and Jesus' announcement of their births and the births themselves? Why does he want to do this? Well, I think there are two reasons why he would want to do this. The first of all is that he wants to show, particularly Theophilus, remember he's writing to a particular person. Luke's gospel in the first four verses makes clear that he's writing to a person named Theophilus who is most likely a Roman official who would have had a hard time believing the things concerning Jesus. Okay? So he wants to show Theophilus and everyone else who's going to read after him the comparison to show, number one, that God was uniquely involved in the births and in the announcement of these two individuals. He wants to show Theophilus that God is absolutely in control and is uniquely at work in the births of these two men. How does he do that? How does he show Theophilus and how does he show us that God was uniquely at work? He does this by, number one, by sending his angel to predict what would take place before it happened. God wants to show everybody that he's at work at that particular point in history in a powerful way by sending an angel to declare that there are going to be two children that are going to be born at a particular point in history. He doesn't send the angel afterwards. He sends the angel before he doesn't wait until they're born and then have the angel come down and explain to them what has happened. He wants to show Theophilus and us that, 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 that God was in control of the events. How do we know that? Because he sends an angel to tell uh, Zechariah and Mary, these are things that are going to happen, and he can do that because he's in control of the world's events, So he's telling Theophilus and he's telling us that God is sovereignly, uniquely involved powerfully in the the births of these two individuals. Secondly, we know that God is uniquely at work in these births because the births themselves will be miraculous in nature. There's no way that Zechariah and his wife and Mary can have children on their own. There's no way that can happen. Impossible. Impossible. So the because she's barren and they're both and they're both advanced in age, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and Mary is not married. She's not with she's not with anybody. So how in the world can they have children? The fact that he sends an angel to announce this and then performs it is showing Theophilus and everybody else that God Almighty is at work in a powerful way in the lives and in the announcements of these two births. Okay. Another reason why that the author will put John and Jesus and their announcements and their births side by side is to show that Jesus is far greater than John. You say, I, that's well, we know that to be true, don't we? We know that Jesus is greater than John. But if you're in the first century, that would have been very, very difficult to understand and know, Right? So let's listen to the language of the angel when he makes the announcement to, to Zechariah. Listen to what the angel says about John. In verse 15, there are three things that the angel says about John the Baptist. He says that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. That is, a man who is important in, the, in God's work of salvation. He is also going to be a man who will neither drink wine or strong drink meaning that John's going to be an ascetic, a man of great dedication and discipline. Next, we see that he will be a man filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So John is going to be a man filled with power from on high. Next, the angel will will illuminate to Zechariah what John will do. In verse 16, he's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That is, he will have a ministry of reconciliation between people in God. In verse 17, we also see that he will also go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That is, he will have a ministry of reconciliation between people and people. And in verse 17, it says, the angel says to Zacharias, He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. His ministry, John's ministry, is a ministry of preparation. And now we're going to see what the angel Gabriel says about Jesus. In verse 32, this is what the angel says Jesus will be He will be great. That's it. There's no description, no qualification. Now, He won't be great in the sight of the Lord. He's just great, period, because He is the Lord. Right? Verse 32 also says that he will be called the son of the highest or son of the most high. He will have a unique relationship with God the Father. And also in verse 32, speaking of Jesus, he will be a king or a royal figure for he will receive from the Lord God the throne of his father David. So he will, he will be someone who is a royal figure. That kind of language is never spoken of John. John. And what will Jesus do? In verse 33, he's going to, his reign will be eternal. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will be eternal. And his kingdom, there will be no end. So clearly the angel is telling us in the revelation to Mary that Jesus is greater than John. Theophilus may have inverted that and many people in Jesus' day would have thought that John was greater than Jesus. Why? Well, because John was older than Jesus and John's ministry preceded that of Jesus. So if you're living in the first century, you would have thought based on culture and custom that John was superior than Jesus. To Jesus in fact, John's own disciples thought that John was superior to Jesus. If you go to John chapter three, both Jesus and John's ministry for for a brief uh, for a brief time um, overlapped, and they're both at the Anon River and they're baptizing. And John's uh, John's uh, disciples go to John and say, "Hey, John, all of these you know, some of these disciples who are following you." They're leaving you and are going to the person that you've been testifying about. In other words, why are you allowing them to leave? They should be following you, not him. Why would they say that? Because they thought John was greater than Jesus. And so he wants to make it perfectly clear that Jesus is superior. Though he follows him in birth, he is superior to John the Baptist, which is one of the reasons why Luke is presenting the material in contrast to one another. Okay? But there's one more reason why he puts this material together, and there's one more comparison and contrast that I think he's trying to show to us when he does so. He wants us to see the right and the wrong way to respond to God's promise of power by looking at the life, uh, by looking at the announcements uh, of, 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 of the angel Gabriel to both Zechariah and Mary. Okay, so let's take a look at Zechariah's response. How does he respond to the angel Gabriel, verses 18 to 20? And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? How will I know that what you say to me will come to pass? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the days these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words which were fulfilled in their own time. Doesn't believe. It is clear that Zechariah doesn't believe the angel's response. He found himself in a similar situation as Abraham did long before, but he doesn't respond in the same way as Abraham. Paul writes concerning Abraham in Romans 4:19 and 20, he says this: "And not being weak in faith, he did not Abraham did not consider his own body, already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb." He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So, Zechariah, in a very similar situation to Abram, doesn't respond in the same way as Abraham. Now, look at, look at Mary's response to what the angel says to her in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Notice the contrast between both responses. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? Mary says, how can this be? What's the difference? Zechariah is asking for more evidence. Mary is asking for an explanation. Zechariah says he can't be sure. Mary says she can't understand. The point that Luke is making to Theophilus and to everyone who reads the first two chapters of Luke is this. Be like Mary when you hear the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Don't be like Zechariah. Those are the three comparisons that we see in these first two chapters with the births and with with the annunciations of the births, okay? Jesus is greater. God is doing a supernatural work, a powerful work at this particular time in history, and Uh, He wants us to show us to respond like Mary and not like Zechariah to divine revelation. But what does this mean for you and me? I think there are three things, three lessons I want to point out. Number one, the first lesson we learn from the contrast between Mary's response and Zechariah's response is that it is possible to demand too much evidence before we believe God's promise. It's possible for us to demand too much evidence before we believe in God's promise. This does not mean that it's wrong to want evidence for our faith. Our belief is not groundless. We don't just believe in nothing. There's a reason why we believe, right? But there is an evil in demanding signs beyond what a humble heart would require. This is evident later on in Luke's gospel when he writes this in Luke 11, 29, 32. And while the crowds were thickly gathered, Jesus began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with the man, with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Note, Jesus is not criticizing these people's faith. He is exposing the hard and unrepentant hearts of his contemporaries because they cannot see in his miracles and character the the signs of truth. And so Zechariah's unbelieving response to the angel is a warning to us not to demand too much evidence before we believe in God's promises. Second lesson that we learn from the contrast between Mary's response and Zechariah's response is that it is okay to want to ask for explanations when we're perplexed. Mary was not accused of unbelief like Zechariah when she asked the angel, how can I have a son when I have no husband? Mary saw the human impossibility as clearly Zechariah did, but her heart did not reject the possibility and unbelief. She responded humbly and desired only to know how such an impossibility might be. Mary's response to the angel teaches us that when our hearts are right, God is not opposed to our seeking to understand his ways in our lives. It is true, we will never understand everything in this age, but the possibilities of what we can understand about the ways of God on the basis of his revealed word are deep. The only acts of God that we should not try to understand are the ones that he has told us not to go searching for. We must guard against, what we must guard against is not, is, is, is not that we probe the ways of God too deeply, but that we probe with, a, with the wrong spirit. A spirit of idle curiosity or arrogant skepticism would be Wrong. But a spirit that longs to know more of God's wisdom with humility, this pleases the Lord, and that was with Mary's. That was Mary's spirit. So we saw that uh, that in these two responses, that it's possible to demand uh, too much evidence before we believe in God's revelation, but it's also okay, based on Mary's response, to want to ask for explanations when we are perplexed. And thirdly. The third lesson we learn learn from Zechariah's response is that we must not despair if we fall into a period of unbelief. Zechariah's unbelief was not permanent. Notice at the very beginning of the story, chapter uh, chapter one, verse five, we saw about, uh, when we, we were reading about Zechariah, we noticed that he was a very pious individual. Both him and his wife were blameless, right? So they were without... Uh, according to the Old Testament system of laws and, and keeping the Old Testament uh, laws and, and mandates, they were above reproach. If you were to live, look at their lives in Old Testament times, they were above reproach. The, the, the author, what he's doing here and in, in, in showing that Zechariah was a, a blameless individual was to show that the reason why Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't have a child and they were barren wasn't because of some sin. Okay, the fact that the scripture says that they were blameless is to show that this had nothing to do with their sinfulness. So he was a faithful person, Zechariah was. Okay, but we see here when divine revelation comes, he doesn't believe it. All right, and, when we're, if, and we can understand that because there's all times when we stumble in our faith. Isn't it true? We all do. Just because he didn't believe the angel here doesn't mean he was no longer a follower of the God of Israel. Right? But I think sometimes Christians have a hard time that when we when we stumble in our faith and we don't demonstrate faith, that we can get we can be really hard on ourselves and really beat each other up. I, I can do that to myself. I know I do. And God has to say, stop it. You know, you can be hard, you can be hard on yourself or be harsh with the words that you use towards yourself. And God says, no, no, no. You're still my child. You just grow. Okay? And And we see this with Zechariah, that he is a man who is a man of faith. He shows unbelief at the divine revelation. But watch what happens in verses 67 and 68. After the child is born, we see Zechariah say these words. Now his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Here you see he's back to faith again, right? Right? Faith, stumbled, and back to faith. He's just like Peter, right? Peter was a man who followed Jesus, stumbled in his faith, but was restored in his faith, okay? And so what we learn in Zechariah's response, that though he did not believe when the angel was disclosing the revelation, doesn't mean that he was no longer a believer, right? And it what this tells me is that we should not despair in times when we question God or we don't believe something or we demonstrate a lack of faith in our lives and our walk. Don't despair. Okay, Zechariah was able to write the course and so can you and I. That's what the three lessons that we pick up in the first two chapters when we compare them. It's possible to demand too much evidence before we believe God's promise. It's okay to ask for explanations when we're perplexed and do not despair when we fall into unbelief because we all will at some point. But Jesus Christ is going to restore us. As he restored Peter, he will restore us. There's no need to despair. We stumble, that's okay. That's why it's good to be in a church and community, right? We can lift each other up and restore each other when we, when we fall and when we falter during hard times. We think of Jesus. Jesus here, the announcement, and his birth. Luke is starting the story of Jesus by comparing John and Jesus, because Jesus is gonna enter into the world and he's going to reconcile people who put their trust in him for salvation. And Jesus does come into this world, but he doesn't come just to simply live. He's going to come to die so that we could have that relationship with him. Because he loves you. I love you. I give my life for you. He gave his life for the disciples who did not understand what he was doing. But he loved them so much, even when they stumbled in their faith, Jesus was praying for them, and Jesus is praying for you and he's praying for me. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When supper had ended, he also took the cup and he blessed it And said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for all men so that your sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? As we share God's meal together, Think of Jesus coming into this world dying for you and for me so that we will be with him for eternity and with each other for eternity never to be separated again. Think of Jesus and feed upon him together with thanksgiving. I will go around and uh offer communion. I do have some gluten-free, so please, uh, if you want the gluten-free, it's here for you. It's in the middle. Okay, so just take the, the bread and the cup. Just hold on until everyone has received the elements and we'll take it together.
1: ...and off...
0: body of Christ which is broken for you and for me let us partake together the blood of Jesus shed for you and for me let us drink together would you please pray with me Father we thank you for the gift of Jesus that he came into this world to bear our sin so that we could have relationship with you now. Unlike the priest, Zacharias, who walked into the temple to offer incense on that altar, who was separated from the most holy place because of the veil, that veil has been torn from the top down which means we have greater access to you than even Zechariah did because of the work of Jesus on the cross. We're so grateful for who you are and for what you have done for us and what you're doing for us even now, both in our hearts and in our minds, in our homes, in our communities, in our nation and in our world. We thank you for who you are, and help us, Lord, as we feed upon you to be molded and shaped by the power of your Spirit to live lives that are worthy of you, of your name. Fill us with your presence, with your peace this Advent season, and we will give you the praise and the honor and the glory that you alone deserve. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Let us continue our worship this morning by singing hymn number 259, Angels from the Realm of Glory. Where we celebrate the birth of Jesus Jesus is coming again and we pray that uh, this would be a joyous time in the midst of a difficult time because in Jesus Christ we have hope he, we have hope because of Jesus Christ and so now I ask that you will receive this benediction may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace Go in peace. In Jesus' name, amen.